It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Coming up on today's episode, Bernice Harrison will be chatting to Irish author Marita Conlon McKenna about her brand new book, The Hungry Road. And I'm going to be talking to Romana Testaseca about her new web series, which is called Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Almost. Uh, it's a good listen, so stay tuned for that. And remember, our book club is getting together next week to discuss Deborah Orr's Motherwell. So pick up a copy and read it along with us. A couple of other things to mention. Uh, We're getting very close now to voting day, which is on Saturday the 8th. Uh, And if you're still making up your mind, it might be worth having a listen to our election special where we looked at um, the election through a feminist lens. And also the best of luck to Saoirse Ronan on Sunday night. She's nominated for an Oscar. And also a big hat tip to Emer Noon, who on Sunday night at the Oscars will become the first female conductor of the orchestra there. And she is an Irish woman, so something else to be proud of. Now, up next on this episode is Bernice Harrison's conversation with Marita Conlon McKenna, the author of the famous children's book Under the Hawthorn Tree. Marita is back with a brand new book called The Hungry Road. It's a brilliant recreation of the Irish famine told through the stories of real characters from history. She spoke to Bernice about the Irish heroes that inspired her to write the book. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. Today in our studio, we have writer Marita Conlon McKenna, who's come in to talk about her new novel, The Hungry Road. You're welcome, Marita. Thank you very much, Bernice. <laughs> on this very cold day, which I've been moaning about <laughs> all the time, just before we came on air. Um, and then, of course, when you read this book, you think, why would anybody moan ever again? Because the book is set in the famine period in Ireland, specifically in Skibbereen in 1845. Uh, there's three main characters, uh, the seamstress Mary O'Sullivan. The seamstress part of her life is, is not the biggest part. She's, she's a mother. She lives in a small holding with her family. There's Dr. Dan O'Donovan, who is the local med- medical officer to the Skibbereen Union. The Skibbereen Union, um, I think we call them Skibbereen Unions, do we? But really people the call workhouse. them the workhouse. The workhouse, yeah. yeah. Um, and to the workhouse is just such a horrible idea. It has remained deep in our DNA, hasn't it? Yeah. And then the third character is Father John Fitzpatrick. Yeah. Um, when I uh, took this book home, Marita, um, my teenager said, oh, Marita Conlon McKenna. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know what she said then next. Oh, I read Under the Hawthorne Tree. Well, she I said, loved I it, read yeah. Under the Hawthorne Tree. Right. And of course, um, and she would have read that. That was a book uh, for the few listeners I imagine who don't know that was a book for children but it was set in the famine too yeah and how did it come actually to be 
read in schools? Was it just, a, or was it a department or department? Uh, no, I, or? D- I don't know what happened. The book came out and um, I, put, I remember it's 30 years ago this year, 23rd of May since the book came out. Right. And um, my publisher was, like it was really a whiskey book to publish because even Under the Hawthorne Tree is a very strong book. Um, starts with a baby dying and seeing bodies and things like that. And um, really th- didn't think a lot of, you know, mightn't do that well. We weren't sure what would happen when it came out, but I'd written the book for my own daughter, never intending to publish it. But when it did come out then, what happened, it just started to, um, people started reading it and children loved it. And I suppose teachers read it. And of course, the world rights had been sold in every language in the world around the same time. And uh, next thing I knew then, schools were using it. The teachers asked, could they use it Mm. to get people reading? Because it's a very um, short book. It's an easy read, actually. Mm. And um, people who wouldn't normally read books you know, mm. kids who weren't great readers found it yeah. really easy to read. And that's actually been the same everywhere, even in translation, it's the same. Wow. It's amazing. But um, so it just became this book. And then um, I suppose they wanted to cover the famine and they only had the history books, but maybe a little tiny chapter. And suddenly they had this novel which mm. explained the famine to children. And suddenly I, I next thing, there was no one asked me or told me or anything. The next thing I knew it was on the curriculum. Yeah. And yeah. it's been on the curriculum but, I mean, ever I, since. But, and it's actually on the curriculum in New York. Wow. It's on the curriculum in Mexico. And it's you on the curriculum in England. Do you get yeah, feedback oh, from that? Yeah, I get royalties too, which is lovely. Fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, but it's great. But no, it just... Um yeah, people, you know, want a good story, I suppose, for kids to read that they learn something as well. So I never set out to teach anybody yeah. anything, but it's ended that way. And then I go into schools now and they're doing animation projects, they're doing drama projects, um, they're making cottages, they're making workhouses, yeah. they're doing all kinds of stuff around the books. And it's just incredible to see it because uh, they've taken the books and done a lot more with them than I than even I had imagined. But clearly, ever. it was a really successful children's book because the the point about children's book is it's very hard to write for children because they're they don't like what you think they're going to like. No, yeah. Um. So, and if all these years later she remembers it really fondly, yeah. So and kids tend not to remember enormously fondly yeah. books that they've been. You know, you yeah. have to read this, and then it's about the famine. So. Yeah. You know, hard subject, but yeah. clearly it, it it resonated and 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 struck a note. And I I think that's actually what this book will do. I I think the hungry road. So tell me, is this, if you like, under the Hawthorne Three for grown ups in a sense? It wasn't intended that way at okay. all. I had never ever intended writing another family book. And my my publisher might. There's a trilogy in my three books, the children's books, the Children of the Famine series. And he's regularly asked me, he brings me out for a lovely lunch, <laughs> Great. gives me a few glasses of wine and says, will I write another book in the series? And I've always said no, because I thought the trilogy felt really fi- fixed, fitted together really well and told the, the Irish story. And then what happened, um, 30 years have passed and I really had expected in those 30 years there would have been some really big famine novels coming out mm-hmm. because there was a huge interest um, in history um, there's a huge interest in research um, about the famine and uh, but no one had really touched it. Mm-hmm. I, I know it is a difficult subject. So I, I began to grow in my mind the last few years and I had written a book about the 1916 Rising Rebel Sisters which was taking it from a different slant was through the eyes of women different sisters and um, and I was kind of kept thinking like why hasn't anyone done anything with the famine and then I began to the story was started off more about a cottage and land and a generation in the present and a generation in the past. It was meant to be a different book. But then when I actually started writing it, it took off in a different direction because once I started researching and I went to Skipreen, which is where my family are from, my mum is from, and um, I knew Skipreen. Sure, I'd been there since I was a child walking the streets. Mm. And, and my it's aunt a small place. Yeah, so. a very small place. Mm. So I knew it well. But I didn't 
really know the story of Skibreen, even though I was there every year. I didn't actually really know it. It's, it's shameful to say. But um, I went to Skibreen Heritage Centre, which has opened in the last few years. And there I discovered about this very famous um, famine doctor called Dr. Dan Donovan. And Dr. Dan Donovan was an amazing, courageous, brave, strong, intelligent, meticulous man who had only been appointed. The, the, the workhouse had only opened in Skibreen two or three years before the famine. Why had the workhouse opened, by the way? They were, there was a plan, they were opening record all over Ireland and mm. England. They were doing workhouses, but the Skibreen one had only opened, I think it was in 1840, end of 1842, early 1843. Daniel O'Connell came to Skibreen in 1843. It had only just opened, so he was the first physician appointed to the workhouse. And they also, that was linked with the dispensary in the town. So people would come to the dispensary, and the work, but no one wanted to go into the workhouse. Mm. It was a terrible stigma. So there were very few people in it. They built this workhouse but really not very many people went to it. And is that how you, like the famine is obviously an enormous subject yeah. so is that how you as a writer approach an enormous subject? you find a character? Yeah, when I, when I read, read he wrote he wrote this, he's keep this diary and actually some of them were published they were printed in the, the Cork newspaper then they're picked up by the Irish papers then they were picked up by the Illustrated London News, which next to the Times in London had the biggest circulation in England. And they're picked up by some of the American newspapers and foreign newspapers. And when I read, I mean, it was really graphically, he was a doctor. He described exactly what he saw and um, really horrific scenes, which I had never really imagined in the famine, things being so bad. Yeah, and, and you, can I just, just pick you up on that? Because actually, I totally agree. It was only after... And you've put you've put a lot of that in in the novel. Yeah, because it's his words. I'm, I'm using his words. I like, modernise them a bit, but actually using his words because what was extraordinary to me was, and I, I felt foolish for not yeah. thinking of it before, is that you know we all know that there was so many deaths, yeah. but I've never thought of the bodies. Yeah, about how what they happened. Jumped. Yeah, and what then, happened in a whole in a in a whole town that was starving yeah. and nobody had any money for. Anything. Anything. Yeah, and I said about the coffins that there was upset. There were people who were obsessed about getting coffins for their dead, and of course mm. they had no money. And they, and if they had even a penny, they put it towards a coffin instead of buying food for their children. And this was a really big thing. And in the book, Father Fitzpatrick, the priest actually speaks out about it. You know, and says people because they couldn't, they didn't have even people to make the coffins anyway. So, but I just and Mary then, who's my main female character, Mary Sullivan, she actually ends up sewing shrouds for the dead because in the end people were put in shrouds because they didn't have the wood. They didn't have to make coffins. So. And is the priest a real character? Oh yeah, he is. Oh, okay. Yeah, and he, he had written to the papers and there's his, on record, his things as well, what he did. He was an amazing priest. And it was just all these incredible, the local solicitor, the local bank manager, the local um, pharmacy, um, Jerry, Jeremiah Crowley. These were all real people that mm. lived in the town at the time. And it's on record, their meetings and everything. And it was just in a way to take this story and make it... Um, you know, that I could understand it and put it together as a story that would have a flow mm. and work and um, tell it from, you know, the high point of Daniel O'Connell coming and they were all so excited and crowding into into this place in Curriefield to see him and then Curra Hill and then then this you know, next in the Pilatus fail. The devastation that, that, that wreaked on not just Skibreen and West Cork, but Kerry and Clare and Donegal and Galway. Literally, I, I, what we would call the Wild Atlantic Way now was you know, the worst place to live. The Hungry worst place. Hill. Just really terrible. But 
it was such an interesting book to write and and also it was like doing this big puzzle of how you would pull it together to tell the story and like I, I felt it was an enormous puzzle for me to try and do and um, I thought I'd have the book written in a year and a half I thought I'd have the book written in two years and then we went into the third year and um, I just you know and but I was very lucky I had really good editors and a good editor here in Ireland and who was very au fait with what I was doing it gave me my time and then I had very good publishers who backed off and let me have the time the space to do the book because I knew it was a big book and it was actually a bigger book than I originally thought it was going to be because of what I was discovering when I was researching and how I was putting it together and like um, James Mahoney the artist came to and the illustrator who if we see anything about the famine, we see these these broken down hovels. And, yeah, and the, the the black and white drawings that um, James Mahoney did. But he actually came to Skibreen and Dan Donovan, the doctor, showed him around all these places. And they're the iconic images. So to have this real, um, you know, artist now, which is in collections and used for everything to illustrate the famine around the world, and to have him actually, he's a character in the book, going around with his sketch pad and Dr. Dan making him put his head down between his knees because he's nearly going to collapse with what he sees, you know, because mm. he's going to get sick, you know. But I think your skill as an author and it's it's really like this is a page turner you yeah. know I, I don't want you know because people will have heard that and they're like oh my goodness this all sounds extraordinarily heavy like yeah. Jeepers Creepers yeah. This is a page turner of a novel. Like I wanted to find out what, what happened happens. to Mary Sullivan. Yeah, you know, Mary I Sullivan is to find out how the doctor's family would survive this. And I was really a slightly untenterable, thinking, were they going to? I was worried for them for a while. Oh, I, so, in other words, it it has all that the 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 sort of the novelistic storytelling arc that you need. You, yeah. you know, you, you it's it's compelling. Yeah. So, I, I and I think sometimes people, and when I say people, I actually mean me. Um, I I shy away from historical fiction yeah because I feel oh I don't really want to get bogged down in this yeah you know um but this escapes that by having these strong characters and yeah. also in writing historical fiction presumably you had so much more than you could possibly get into these pages no I had I had too much and actually there was a few chapters that had to come out of the book near the end because it was too long and too big and I was going off trying to follow different tangents and my editor said look we cannot have everything and we can't put the whole kitchen sink in because yeah. I was just wanting to make sure everybody knew everything even by the end of the book Dan Donovan they were sending girls from the workhouse to Australia mm. I had a chapter written about that mm. who went out and then actually populated they were the Irish girls who popped was the, the um, Earl Grey scheme mm. and that book that chapter came out of the and book because hard? we had too much you and know? is that hard for you uh, as uh, no, a writer because I realised oh, no, you see because I'm so caught up on it mm. it's such a big book I need an outside um, editor or a voice to say to me I tend to write too much rather than too little and um, I need an, an outside voice to say look you know, you have to. And even Philip um, from the Heritage Centre who launched my book, um, Dennis Cabrini, he was saying, you have to be done now. You have to be done, you know. Yeah. But I I didn't really want to let it go till I had it exactly the way I wanted it. And like Mary Sullivan, um, who is the main female character in the book, she is such a strong person. I have never written such a strong female character. Mm. And like She's all fantastic. my books have strong, I mean, Eileen in Under the Hawthorne Tree and Peggy in Under the Hawthorne Tree. And every book I've written, you know, Nellie Jifford, Grace Jifford, Muriel Jifford in The Rebel Sisters, real people who were alive during the mm. 1916 Rising. Um, but Mary Sullivan, I have never written a character as strong as her who, um, you know, looked out those devastated fields and knew what was coming and vowed she would not let her children die. She would not let them go hungry. And she did everything 
everything, everything. Mm. You know, bar killing another human and cooking not to feed her children. Mm. She did everything she could to feed her children. And um, pride went out the window, um, just survival. And uh, I just thought she was such an intelligent. But I knew, it's funny, because when I started the book and I started, her first name came on the page and she's going to visit her. She goes to see Daniel O'Connell and then, I, suddenly I was passing a shop and she was a seamstress and that's where she worked before she got married. Mm. And I said, where did that come into it that she's yeah. a seamstress? I hadn't expected that. And then this thing of being a seamstress came through the book. It was like a thread. Her mother had sewn and shown her how to sew. Her mother had worked in the big house in Bantry and, and her mother had helped keep their family going by sewing and doing mending and repairs and things like that and also growing other vegetables, not just the potato. That, mm. So there were, this was an intelligent female mm. line. And uh, and I also had in the book how females helped each other, that her employer, who was uh, who helped the dressmaker in the town, there was actually four dressmakers in Skibreen at the time of the famine, which was amazing. Yeah. But this dressmaker, Nora Barry, um, helped her. She wasn't married and gave her work, gave her work, first of all, doing repairs and mending. And then later on making shrouds because Nora Barry had no work herself and she was just making shrouds for the dead. Mm. And she let uh, Mary then employed her to help make the shrouds as well. So it this thing and then later when the book when it does go to America well, we won't, we won't, won't go, yeah. spoiler alert no, no, but but we're, uh, we're, we're really we're that always needle thread go with her that needle thread yes, go with this her this always yeah. happens yeah. On, on when we talk about books on our podcast yeah. we're always oh, no so, don't say I won't say that because listeners get very cross okay. actually yeah. um, can I just you, you touched earlier on the fact that there's so little um, about the famine in our creative output in this country. Yeah. So little. Yeah. Why is that in your I view? Don't, I don't know. There's more coming now at music and more. Did you see art. Black 47 last year? Yes, I did. I what th- did you think of Black I 47? Thought it, I thought it was really Black, good. Sorry, just Black 47 was, was a film. movie directed by Lance Daly yeah. and it's about the famine. Yeah, I saw that and I thought it was really good. Um, I did find it hard to um, really care about the people. That was the only thing. I thought it was a great big pitch and it was like um, uh, Western. It was about revenge mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. But I felt you didn't care. It was it was uh, uh, at a distance, you yeah. know, where and the women in it were. Um, there was no women really in it mm. at all, and they were dead. Like he came home and it was his mother yes, and his right. sister, yeah, that sister were dead. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they were dead. So I felt the lack of women, mm-hmm. um, really, and their care. It was just one man revenge against another man and yeah. cutting off people's heads and pigs and things like that. Mm. And it was really good. I really I thought it was brilliant. It was done. But I felt the lack of a female mm. um, thing through that film. But, but, it, it wasn't. It, it would have made it a bit better and softened it and more caring. You because know? I was thinking, I, I read this last week, and last week um, it was the seventy-fifth anniversary of the uh, closing of Auschwitz. Yeah. And you know, I think we're starting to understand now, or it's starting to seep into our consciousness that you know, maybe the famine was our Holocaust. Um, I, I don't think it was a Holocaust. I was watching the thing there about mm. Belson and, and Auschwitz there, the documentaries were on BBC Two and that the other day. And ours is a very different story. Ours is ho- great hunger, great famine. And I, you can't compare it to that because it was a totally different situation. But what happened in Ireland was absolutely tragic. And, um, you know, perhaps if there more help had been uh, happened, if, if there had been more, um, you know, better involvement by the authorities in London, if they had realised the, um, the the actual scale, I think they didn't really realise the scale of it. But why do you think it's so, it hasn't been the subject of more novels and films and, you know, I think Black 47, might that have been, 
was that the first movie that was in just simply about the famine? Yeah, well, actually, Under the Hawthorne Tree was filmed a small oh, version of it okay. um, there years ago by Kilkenny Young mm. Filmmakers, and we're hoping eventually there will be a bigger one. Mm. But um, no, there. So why I, is that? I don't why, know. Why I are think creative people, people not find it hard to do diff- about difficult, difficult subjects. subjects. Yeah. yeah, and they think, oh, well, people won't go to it, or they won't watch it, or they yes. they'll find it too hard. And like it is really, really hard, you know. So um, I think it's the way you tell it. Yes. So it's a way to find a way to tell something that it becomes a page turner or it becomes a thing you can go and watch and see mm. rather than just being caught up in a terrible horror story. And um, it's how um, you get around that. But I think with music, there, there's different, you know, um, Damien O'Rourke, there's different art. Some artists are starting out. We have, we have brilliant. We have John Bean, we have Rowan Gillespie, we have some amazing, mm. um, you know, sculptures and, sure. and artists who are, are doing it, you know. Yeah. But the thing is, unfortunately, we haven't got a collected here in Ireland, which is one of my bugbears. We haven't got a collection of famine art here in Ireland, um, which we should should have but um, I think it is coming through in the music and the um, thing and I'm sure there will be more books and more stories um, but I was I have to say I mean I did not expect I would write a book 30 years ago yes. for children and it yeah. would be 30 years before and, and there'd be nothing like really in between that would be of uh, you know a big story that would hit people I, I never expect and I never expected that would you know not fall on me, but it would just happen again. Mm. That um, but I I felt it was a story to be told, and I said that before I get any older, and while I'm still able for doing that kind of research, I said if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. You know. And can I just ask you briefly? You talk, so that's the thirty year gap between the Hawthorne Three and yeah, big gap, yeah. Well, but you haven't exactly been twiddling your thumbs. Oh no, no, I've been writing. <laughs> I've been writing lots of other books. So you have. So you're quite prolific. Oh yeah, I go from, I, I'm very boring. I go from book to book to book mm-hmm. and I always have a book or two or three in my head. Uh, but I'm I'm, I'm quite, um, I know, meet male writers, they're very different. They'll be working on two or three books at a time. They'll do one in the morning, a different one in the afternoon. Yes. I can't work no, like so that. So you're one, yeah, okay. I, I'm a one book person. And where do you write? Um, well, I have a really big study in my house now. I started off writing at the kitchen table when my children were small and in an old dining room. I write on the train when I'd be waiting for them outside school in the car, I'd be writing on a pad and I could write anywhere. But now I, I have a lovely big study overlooking the garden and I go in there and I write. I can still write on a train. I was writing a train the other day. I can still write on the kitchen table. But I have my lovely study and I've everything around me, my clutter around me and in this middle of this clutter, terrible clutter I have to admit, I, I managed to get the story and uh, work on it and build it. But even though I use a computer, I still print out everything and uh, read it and mark it up. And um, So how many drafts then would you do? A few drafts mm. and, um, but I'd always um, I have I put up on the computer but even though I read on the computer I don't really read it properly on the computer. I have to print out the chapter and go and sit of a blue chair in my kitchen. I sit in the blue chair and read it properly there because even though I can read it on screen, I have to have it in my hand. I have to have the print and the pen in my hand. Just the using of the pen and the print page I have to do. I'm and old-fashioned that way. And are you a nine-to-five writer or are you, you know, no. rolled out at 11 o'clock in the morning then have a gin and tonic? No, like no, no, what? No, I, well, I could be. I, I tend to write. I started writing in the morning when my kids were small because they were at school and their playgroups. I could do it then. And then I'd write at night when they'd gone to bed. I always found afternoon a bad time because my family there was collecting and bringing in and doing homework and bringing them to lessons and things like that. So, um, even though my children are all going up now, I still am in that routine and I find I write best in the morning. I like to get up, have my breakfast and get dressed and go straight to my study. And then I, I can write at night, and especially when I'm you know coming to the last third or last half of a book. Mm. I am writing till two and three and four in the morning. I don't notice time. I just go in 
and a chapter might, with some chapter might take me, you know, I don't know, a few hours. Another chapter might have me till all hours or two, two or three days doing it. It just depends because um, when I'm writing, I don't actually feel time at all. I actually don't notice time. And, um, you know, I noticed maybe when I get a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, mm. get something to eat. But I, I just am so in it and I'm, especially at the end of the book, I don't really see my friends very much and I just kind of hibernate with the book and um, it's not very interesting or very boring. That's why I am. And then, and then of course, the minute the book is finished then, I have a new idea. So what's I'm, next then? Well, I'm writing a children's book at the moment. Oh. Yeah, So I've started that. that. That's a big gear change, is it? No, because I love writing children's okay. books. So it's not, it's not a gear change. And after a big book like this, it's lovely to go do something else. So I have two or three children's books I want to do. One is a picture book and then I have another one or two novels I want to do. So I have them all queuing up on my brain <laughs> and lined up but I have to get I only give one at a time the space to do it and um, work on it like that it's very boring but, but I've been writing like this always so um, it's the way I, I work and one thing from meeting lots of other writers I have lots of friends who are writers we all have different patterns and you have to follow your own pattern and you can't change much as you'd like to change to be like somebody else's pattern you, you can't change your pattern of your thing and if you fight against your pattern it's very difficult as a writer. So you have to recognise your pattern and, and stick with your own pattern and stay with that. And then you'll find the writing a bit easier because it's so easy to go off and say, well, I'll do this or I'll do that. And then you're missing the time you should be writing, you know, and I have to protect my writing space. It's really important for me. My, and since I was a little girl, my writing space has always been important to me. And though I have a very full, lovely life, my writing space has always been really important to me and I always guard it very carefully. So I think listeners would have got some really good writing advice there from Marita Conlon McKenna, author of The Hungry Road. Uh, it's published by Transworld, which is a Penguin imprint. Mm. And it's in the shops now. Thank you so much, Marita, for coming Thank in. you so much, Bernice. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Thanks again to Bernice Harrison and Marita Conan McKenna. Now, Romana Testaseca spoke to me about her new online series, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Almost. She grew up in Italy with her Irish mum and her Italian father, but decided to come to Ireland to study drama. She's now working in the arts and as a personal trainer and her web series will see her taking on new challenges like rock climbing, acrobatics and something called Brazilian funk. Romana Testaseca, a lovely Italian name, and we'll talk about your heritage later <laughs> on. But first of all, you've got this new series, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Almost. Um, and it's going to be on YouTube and all various social media platforms. Where did you get the idea for the show and what's it about? So the show is all about trying new things and I'm the one trying them. So I'm the host and the trier, we call it. Uh, so the idea is basically to inspire people to try new things, uh, something that they maybe have always wanted to try or that's on their list but they're scared to do it or maybe they're afraid of climbing or, and afraid of heights and they want to go climbing but they're afraid of not being good enough. So it's basically to encourage people to get themselves out there and get out of their comfort zones without judging themselves too much. And you talk about some how most people can recall a moment in PE class where they didn't feel worthy unless there's some sort of sport goddess or god and schoolmates shouting at you if you don't catch the ball or being picked last, that kind of thing. <laughs> Is it those kind of moments that inspired this? That, you know, I mean, I remember when I was in school um, doing knitting one time, I'll never forget it, and I was delighted with myself. I was knitting a hairband and then the teacher held it up and I was thinking, oh my God, this is so great. And she basically held it up and said, 
don't do it like this. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. Because then I realised there was a big hole in the middle, which I hadn't realised. But the point is, it really made me just go, I can't miss. I'll never never bother again. But but that's such a block then. And people go, oh, well, I had that one experience. And like, for example, I'm a personal trainer as well. And people told me, like, a friend of mine told me a story that she was in the gym doing a lap pull down. And she grabbed the handlebars wrong or something. And the personal trainer, far away, like this little group of lads were laughing at her. And she said she never went back to the gym. Because she was so scarred by the experience. So it's basically about, I, I'm kind of ridiculing myself or making a fool of myself on the show, not being t- scared of failing, not being scared of like, you know, falling out of the hoop or, you know, falling off the mountain. Obviously, I'm strapped, but you know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm trying all these extreme things that I've never tried before and trying to show, look, it's okay if you fail. Yeah. Have a little laugh at yourself. Who cares? So you know? like you're saying, what if we started showing people our weaknesses and yeah. bonded over making light of them and laughing at our mistakes and as Beckett puts it, failing better. That's one of your... Exactly. Uh, I love that quote. Um, so tell us about um, this. You set the challenge to yourself to match yourself against the best in various disciplines. So mm-hmm. give us an example of, they're, they're small little programs, so they're 10 minutes and there's five of them. So exactly. like a mini series of it. Absolutely. So the first episode, I'm working with an amazing artist. Uh, she's actually an actor as well, but she's an aerialist as well. And she basically talks me through and shows me a load of moves that you can do on an aerial hoop. So okay. that is quite amusing. Um, I'm obviously not as graceful as her. So that's kind of the idea. Like people kind of go into a discipline thinking I'll be great at it straight away. But it's just not like that. You have to practice and practice and practice until you're good at something. And it's OK not to be good at it at the start. And how long did you spend trying to do this hoop stuff? So we did about an hour and a half of okay. me kind of falling in and out of the hoop, her showing me, her guiding me through it. She's a brilliant teacher. So um, it was really interesting because you kind of look at it, make like she lo- makes it look so easy and graceful. And then you try it yourself and you're like oh god this is so sore so that's kind of interesting to see the behind the scenes of how she got where she is and what else did you do you did a bit of rock climbing rock climbing have you ever done that before never and I'm quite afraid of heights I actually did um, (laughs) what's the one that you do in the tree zip lining I got so scared because I was so high up Uh, the climbing was incredible because I felt like my brain was so in tune with my body because if you make a little mistake your body will pay for it like you will fall out uh, of you won't fall out of your harness because you're tied, but you'll fall off the mountain, might scratch yourself or whatever. So you have to be so um, mindful of your every move and so present. So it made me feel very because I'm kind of always onto the next thing, always distracted. So it was really nice to just hone into one activity and focus in on that. Um, and did it help you? Uh, th- so you did something as well called Brazilian funk, which I've never <laughs> yes. heard of. What the hell is that? <laughs> so that's a really cool. Uh, you know, twerking. I do. I've so, never actually done twerking, but I, so I, I've seen Miley Cyrus. Yeah, that's basically where it comes from. So Tatiana Santos, she's the girl who did it with me. And I actually had two special kind of guest stars on the show, Karen Clean and Colt Malloy. They helped me for that episode because it's the final episode. So I wanted something a little bit different and not just myself trying. And because it's dancing, it'd be nice to have a kind of a girl mm. gang. So we all got up and tried it. And Tatiana's so sexy and cool. And we were just so, like my friends are both Irish and they were like, we feel like like 12-year-old teenage boys trying to move our hips. Like, it was just so funny. And that's where it all comes from. But it all is based in Brazil. And now it's kind of normalised because, you know, Miley Cyrus is doing it and white people are doing it. But it started in Brazil, kind of. Yeah, the is there this worry this about cultural appropriation with twerking that it's like exactly. imitating people of colour's sort of 
It dances. is a little bit. So Tatiana was kind of saying to us, I mean, we talked a little bit about cultural appropriation. You'll have to watch the show and see because yeah. it was, um, it, she was saying that like people think that uh, twerking is almost like an invitation or it's like, oh, you know, if I'm if I'm moving my hips like this, it means something sexual. sexual or, yeah. But it's not like that. She's yeah. just expressing herself in her art form. That's what she's doing. So, okay. um, listen, how did you get to the point where you wanted to make a programme like this? And well, tell us a little bit about yourself first, because you're from, well, you grew up in Italy and when you were 19, you came to Ireland. Your mum's Irish and your dad is Italian. Exactly. Um, so what was you of interesting life growing up in Italy, speaking Italian, obviously, I presume yeah. you're fluent mm-hmm. and then also speaking English with your Irish mum. Yes. So, well, I grew I grew up in the centre of Rome in Trastevere, a lovely area. Say that again. Trastevere yeah. is the area. Yeah, I See, love I, would, it. I think I'd be saying Trastevere. Is Trastevere. That, is that, yeah. yeah, but you pronounce my surname very well. Oh, thank Not you. Many that was monitors. a lucky guess. Yeah, but she, so she basically, my mum is very like me, very kind of proactive, always getting up and doing things and trying new things. And we, we've kind of have that a little bit of fearlessness about us. But with that comes like the messiness and the clumsiness. Like I don't know how to do everything, but I think I do. So I go into things uh, just trying my best and, and laughing when I can't do it. You know, I try not to take it too seriously. And I think that's what I want people to to come out with not taking yourself too seriously and I guess I was always doing things I was dog walking teaching English when I was really young and then I was kind of doing athletics and I was doing dancing I was running I was kind of like very kind of hyperactive kid and like even in school I couldn't focus at my desk I'm always like moving and Mm. I love being active and then I went into drama always loved theatre and I studied drama and then I studied personal training so I've kind of been delving into all those areas entertainment but also personal training the last while, which I love. So I, I guess it came from um, th- this season specifically is all about movement, but it doesn't have to be for the following seasons. You know, it could be something different. We'll see. But uh, at the moment, it's just it came from my love of movement, my love of trying new things and I guess putting myself out there hmm. and, and as an imperfect product because I'm not perfect and I'm messy and I'm clumsy, but I'm also enthusiastic and I throw myself into things. So I just want to show every layer of myself hmm. and hoping that people will do the same. And you grew up in Rome, but then you came here to study drama. But I mean, Ireland, I was just trying to compare, I don't know, I can imagine the lovely <laughs> life in Rome, the lovely life in Ireland too, but you know, very different. Very what made different. you want to settle here in your t- late teens? I always loved Ireland. I used to come over every summer. I used to think it's just such an amazing place, so green. I remember my cousins had a garden. I never dreamed of a garden. I had an apartment. And you got a very city centre. Very kind city centre yeah. vibe, you know, yeah. apartment. We had a rooftop a balcony, terrace. A rooftop, yeah. okay. That's but it was everybody's, you know, it's yeah. not like a green grass with a trampoline and your swings and everything and you could be active Uh, obviously I was active in Rome as well but it it was very alluring the idea of Ireland and I was always over in the summer so the weather was quite good and I was very close to my cousins growing up and I always wanted to give it a go and I always wanted to study drama through English study theatre and I absolutely loved it it was like through the best years of my life Uh, DIT the Conservatory of Music and Drama Brilliant and now your brother and sister are also here. Indeed, it's yes. not a good ad for Italy, is it? Like that's your, but <laughs> yeah. your mum and dad are still in Rome. They're still in Rome. My mum loves it. She's Irish and she loves the yeah. Roman lifestyle. She's a tour guide over there, so it suits really? her very much. Mm. So I guess I mean 
I go back to Rome a lot and I holiday there and now I enjoy every lovely bit. You know, at the time it was school, so I didn't maybe see all the beautiful museums. Now every time I go back, I get to enjoy all the art, yeah. which I love. It's brilliant. So the thing is that people think you have to make a TV programme. It has to be on RTE or it has to be on Channel 4 or BBC. But this is something that you've kind of done with very little money mm-hmm. on your own, off your own back, really. Um, so it, it's interesting to see those platforms. What, what, tell me, it's on YouTube and what are YouTube, the YouTube, IGTV, so Instagram, my own Instagram. So so Romana underscore Testaseca. A little bit difficult to spell, but you'll find it. <laughs> and then we have, uh, we're going to be having it on Twitter, Snippets, and also on Facebook. So there's a special page for it. And there's a Facebook at anything you can do, I can do almost, which is very long. <laughs> it's very long. It's a mouthful. <laughs> and you've got anything you can do, I can do almost at gmail.com. Exactly. Well. If you want to email me. Yes. <laughs> Some ideas for the next season. Absolutely. So, if you're an expert. And I suppose if, if it gains traction and people are enjoying it, the possibility is that it might transfer onto more mainstream TV. Absolutely. Is that I what you ultimately it. want to do? Would you want to be a TV presenter? Yes, I'd love to be a TV presenter of health and wellness, encouraging people to, to be well and and to feel good and to be happy. Um, and I think that that comes from movement. I think that that comes from uh, meditation. I think that that comes whatever you need in your life. So for me, it's say movement, meditation, being grateful and having a, those kind of practices in place. But everyone is different, you know, but for me to encourage and send that message out there, that's what I'd love to do. Um, when you look back in your childhood in Rome, what do you think the best thing about it was or how did it, what was the most formative thing in terms of growing up there? I guess being streetwise. I mean, I think Dublin is a very calm, very polite city. And, you know, obviously there isn't as many people as there are in Rome. I think in Rome, you kind of switch the attitude completely. Really? Switches. Even when I'm driving in Rome, like I've been recently starting to are drive in Rome. Are you shouting in Italian at Oh people? my God, yeah. You just get so frustrated because it's such a busy city. You kind of just become... Give me a um, COVID. Say you're driving and somebody's annoying you. Go, give <laughs> can us I a, swear? Yeah, well, we swear <laughs> in Italian because no one knows what you're saying. Ma fanculo, ma che cazzo I love it. Would you be like that? And that everyone is else very is, rude. Is I'm everyone, so sorry. Is everyone else shouting as well? Everyone else Same. is shouting. Everyone's so drunk. My friend came to visit me in Rome and she was like, I could hear everyone getting up and out of bed, getting to work like down oh. on the street because the apartment's obviously on the street. You so can hear everything. everyone's kind of living cheek by jowl and there's no real privacy. No privacy, <laughs> arguments on the street, everyone's kissing on the street. It's all very passionate other, and loud. And I have to tell you, I have to confess something to you that I've never been to Rome. But then <gasps> I also say something go. worse, I've never been to Paris. Like I'm a pretty sad person, but I'm going to go to Rome and I'll probably uh, try and hook up with your mother and get oh a, my God, a yes, tour. Oh my God, yes, definitely. But I have this impression and it's probably from people going there on holidays and stuff that it's quite a um, a sexualized society or a sexist and that men is it still the case that men would be commenting on women all the time around yeah. the place yeah I do find that part of it kind of when I came to Ireland and maybe because I was in drama and the people I met were so similar to me and there was very a very non-judgmental society around me and um, I guess like we didn't wear makeup we didn't wear jewellery it wasn't whereas in Rome it's very much everyone's very image conscious and, you know, people stroll around and they get dressed up to go to the supermarket. You know, it's that kind of vibe. But it's not only the men. It's also the women are almost kind of like really worried about what they look like and buying their new bag and buying their new shoes. And and maybe it does come ultimately from men saying, you know, you're not pretty enough. This or you're is not what we th- think women should look like. Exactly. And I mean, if you don't fit into that, 
you know, you're not a proper woman. Yeah. I think that's what I kind of have this impression. And yeah. you're not really uh, doing anything to dissuade me. No, but it's true. I, I really, it might be a stereotype. Did you, did you feel that pressure of, as a young woman? And yeah. That, and how, did you kind of go along with it? Or did you say, I don't need to wear makeup all the time or I don't Well, do actually in school, when I was told that in drama I couldn't wear makeup, I was very scared and shocked. Really? I was like, oh my God. In, in Ireland? I, like, yeah, yeah, I was like, what will I do? And maybe my skin wasn't that good and I was worried about it. But now I don't care. I mean, obviously but, sometimes you But I'm you saying it had influenced you it then. Did. Growing up in a place where yeah. this is what we expect our women to look like. Yeah. You, you had fit into Definitely. That. Yeah. And even when you look at ads and the TV and all the presenters have, you know, the boobs out, the big lips, maybe plastic surgery, all of the makeup. Makeup on. It's not natural. Is there any, we don't um, look like that. Movement in in Rome or in Italy where people are actively trying to fight against that culture. No, not really. Really, like I was trying to talk to them about the waking the feminist, you know, in the theatre, and people were like, "What?" Like, so there's not many feminists in Italy, is what you're saying, as far as you've come across. I mean, a lot of my friends would be, but I I just don't know if it's there yet it's not at the stage that it is here definitely like I remember one coming to Ireland the first time this guy in a van like beeped at me and I was like oh there is another person beeping you know whatever and he kind of stopped he was like sorry do you know where this is I can't remember he was asking for a direction there's me being all egotistical thinking he's he's I don't know beeping at me uh, so and they're so polite like no man on, in Ireland would uh, maybe if you're in a bar or something maybe someone will approach you but in Ireland walking the street no one's going to like whistle at you or can't call you Oh, maybe it well, happens, but not as much. Well, I suppose it does happen, but I think from coming from a place where you're just used to that maybe 20 times a day. Exactly. That it, it must seem like nothing. Nothing, absolutely nothing. So very polite, very... I find uh, men here very polite and very kind and respectful. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I, I would feel a bit self... I think I might feel a bit self-conscious in Rome because I might feel like I'm, I don't fit necessarily into what their idea of attractive is. So then, is there the other side that women who aren't like fitting into it, do they, do they make comments about people being not attractive as well? Yeah, kind of everyone's a little bit more... Everyone's a little bit more focused on the physical. Like it really... And I suppose maybe if you look at their background, the Italian, you know, the beautiful art that's come out of Italy and all the designers and all the clothes and the makeup and you know it is very much ingrained in their culture to look beautiful and they are very beautiful like when I went to Italy I was like god everyone is so beautiful like they really are and they don't need much makeup you're like oh my god you're all gorgeous Um, and so they don't need to add all those layers they're beautiful naturally Mm. I think and I really believe that you should just you know maybe if you want to put a bit of makeup on but just try and be as natural as you can and be yourself but they, they have a bit of a barrier or even what I'm doing on the series like I think they think I'm mad. Like, they'd be like, why are you putting yourself out there with all the double chins and all sweaty and all, you know, looking crazy? They would not, they'd be very image conscious in that sense. Okay, so mightn't have the biggest audience in Italy then. <laughs> exactly. I was thinking, should I put subtitles on it and spread it? <laughs> well, listen, it sounds really interesting. I'm definitely going to give it a go. And when is it starting then? So it's already started. The second episode is coming out on Thursday. So each episode is coming out for five weeks in a row on a Thursday and it's 10 minutes long. Brilliant. And it's called Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Almost the Show That Pushes Me. That's you, Romana. And you, if you're up for it, to try something new. So it's just all about getting out of your comfort zone. Exactly. And not feeling like things aren't for you. And if you want to do knitting, do knitting. Even Absolutely. If you're <laughs> um, it's been really nice talking to you. Thanks very much, Thank Romana. you so much, Roisin. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guests, Marita Connor McKenna and Romana Testaseca. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. And if you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on 
the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.